paragraphs that we read today. <coughs> I apologize and ask for your patience. I'm still dealing with a bit of a cold today, and this cough is lingering. So I'm sorry that I will be coughing during the sermon. Let's read now together, and if you would, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word from Galatians 3:23 through 4, 7. Galatians 3.23 Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Will you pray with me one more time? Father in heaven, this is your word given to us for our edification, for our joy, for our comfort in Christ. We pray that you will now, through your spirit, take these words and apply them on our hearts. That you will build us up in comfort and grace till we come to maturity, that one true man in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will do this through the power of your spirit given to dwell in our hearts. And it's for the name, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. I want us to notice as we begin to, one thing here about the structure of this passage. It seems as though we're taking kind of a big chunk today, and we are. It's actually two paragraphs. You can see in the bulletin, and most likely in your Bibles as well, that these verses that we read are divided into two separate paragraphs. Chapter 3, verse 23 through 29 is one paragraph, and then chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 is another paragraph. And I want us to see how these two paragraphs relate to one another just looking at the structure of them. And I'm reminded as I do this that even, even when I get a little bit technical and talk about the structure of the passage, that this is good for us to remember that what we're reading here, this is the Word of God. Holy, inerrant, inspired, given to us for our edification, Word of God. Is not just a, a book of religious wisdom. It's certainly not meant to be only a systematic theology textbook. It's not just good advice or inspirational literature, but this is the Word of God. And therefore, it's impossible for us to go too deep in studying or to meditate too long on what is written here. The more we understand it, the more profitable it will be for us. And so in showing the structure of this passage, I hope this is helpful to you in <clears throat> helping you to see the beauty of God's Word helping you to appreciate the care with which it's written and the precision which it is given for our benefit, that this is inspired by God for us. 
Help us to understand it. Help us to lay it up in our hearts. Help us to study it and come to love it. (coughs) There's two main paragraphs in this passage, and I want us to see the parallelism between these two paragraphs. If we just set them side by side, as it is we have them right above each other, but we'd see that these two paragraphs are very similar. Perhaps that even stood out to you as I was reading the text. That each paragraph says roughly the same thing in different words. Notice. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says that before faith came, that is before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, as long as he's a child, he is no different from a slave Though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers. So both paragraphs start by saying that in ourselves, apart from Christ, under the law, we are enslaved, we're imprisoned, we're under guardians, we're under managers. There is no freedom in that. Then we look and we see in chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, he talks about how although we once were enslaved, now in Christ we are set free. Verse 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So because Christ has come, we're no longer enslaved. It says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. So again, he has begun with slavery apart from Christ and said Christ has come in order that we might be redeemed from that and find freedom. Chapter 3, verse 27 and 28, this is the unique part. Actually, if we back up a moment, we notice that in 26, he says we are sons of God. The theme of adoption, being adopted into God's family is there. Also in chapter 4, verse 5, he said we might receive the adoption as sons. So each each, each, uh, paragraph then has moved from slavery apart from Christ to freedom in Christ, the fact that we are now sons of God through Christ. Now, the unique verses in each of them, in chapter 3, 27 and 28, he talks that we are clothed in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. In verse 27 he says, for as many of of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In chapter 4, verse 6, this is what makes this paragraph unique. He says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So in the first paragraph, what's unique is that he gives us the gift of the righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed. In chapter 4, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then both paragraphs end with the idea that we are now made heirs according to the promise. Chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In chapter 4, verse 7, you are no longer a slave, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we see what Paul is doing here, and it's kind of funny at first glance that he's given us the first paragraph in which he moves from slavery to freedom in Christ, sons of God, the gift of God, to being heirs of God. Then we read the next paragraph, and he says virtually the identical thing, that we are slaves apart from Christ, but we have been redeemed and find freedom in Christ. Therefore, we have the adoption as sons. And as part of that, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit And because we are sons, we are also heirs of God through Jesus Christ. These paragraphs are structured nearly identically. In fact, as he starts verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I mean, as though he's simply explaining himself again. 
going to say the same thing but use different words. So we see the symmetry between these two. Now, when I was in South Carolina, there was a man in our church who was 78 years old. His name was Wesley. And I visited with him, with him regularly. And he, almost every time you spoke with him, he would tell you that his life verse was Psalm 27, 14. It says, Wait for the Lord. Be of good courage. Uh, be strong and take courage and wait for the Lord. And he would always tell you, if God repeats himself twice, it must mean that it's important. Because that verse said, Wait for the Lord twice. And Wesley in his life had done a lot of waiting on the Lord. And I think he's true, he's right about that, that when God says something twice, he means for us to pay attention to it because it's important. In fact, this passage, these verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4 might be some of the most important verses in all of Galatians. These might be some of the most important verses that Paul is writing to his churches. Just imagine here the scene. We remember what Galatians is written into. We remember that Paul has planted these churches in Galatia. He's planted them through the gospel of Christ. He's preached to them salvation through Christ alone. And then he's left, continuing on his missionary journey, and he's left his churches. And after he left, we know these false teachers came in, these ones called Judaizers, who, who came and, and contradicted Paul's gospel. They said, Paul taught you that uh, faith in Jesus Christ is, is all you need for salvation. That's completely apart from works of the law. And they said, that's not true. They contradicted Paul by teaching you must have faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, that's a good starting point, but you must add to that now works of the law. Specifically, in their case, they were trying to convince the people to undergo circumcision and to observe the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament so that they no longer ate with Gentiles. The Galatians were Gentiles, but they were trying to convince them they needed to become Jewish. They needed to become culturally Jewish. They needed to obey all of the Mosaic law in order to be saved, in order to find freedom and Paul is writing to them now, deeply distressed as their pastor who sees that this false teaching is coming in and he sees what it's doing to them. It's putting them back into slavery. He preached to them the freedom that is theirs in Christ. And now they're falling back into slavery once again. And it's a vivid picture to consider <clears throat> that this is not merely false teaching, which it is. And, and false teaching is bad. But he says this is not merely a mental mistake but if you assent to false teaching, that means you are slipping again into slavery. That your life will be categorized as imprisonment, enslaved under sin. And unfortunately, the impulse to fall back into a slavery, to fall back into legalism, to rely on our own works rather than simply rely on Christ, is just as alive and well today as it was in the first century. It looks different today. We have very few false teachers who are encouraging people to pursue circumcision and the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But we have other things, do we not? We have the legalism that tells us that in order to be a true Christian means you must dress a certain way. You must act a certain way. You must engage in a very specific subculture. You must not drink certain beverages. You must not see certain entertainments. You must not do certain things. You must eat at Chick-fil-A, and Kirk Cameron must be your favorite actor. We, we have these subcultures that we've created, and, and we give off this vibe that unless you can enter in into this subculture, then you're not truly a believer. And some of us get this idea, and we think, I'm not worthy of God's love unless I get my act together first. Unless I can do something, unless I sort of pull myself together, <coughs> I will not be in that A-list of Christians. I'll be somewhere down the line. There will be other Christians that God will just be more pleased with, he'll just smile with more often, and I'm kind of off to the side. 
When we watch a football game, sometimes on, on Saturdays you see that off on the sidelines they'll, they'll show all the players standing on the sidelines, and sometimes you see one. It's usually like the third or fourth string quarterback, and he's wearing like a red mesh vest over his jersey. That basically tells everyone he's not going to get in this game. You know, he's just there to help out the coach. He holds up signs that tell the other players what to do. He's wearing a special jersey that tells everyone he's not in the A-list of players. Some of us take that jersey for ourselves. Some of us want to give that jersey to others, and we, and we stratify and we categorize, and we say there are good Christians and bad. And what Paul is doing here is providing some precious remedies for us to free us from that slavery, to bring us back to the gospel, And he provides two things in these two paragraphs. The first paragraph, what he gives us is the righteousness of Christ. And the second paragraph, he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The righteousness of Christ with which we are clothed and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, those are the two things that make each paragraph unique. Within the similar structure, the first thing he gives us, verse 26 and 27, he tells us, by faith we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He says here in verse 23 that if you don't know the gospel, you're a captive. He says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. He includes himself in this and says, before Christ, he says, uh, he himself was under the law. He himself was imprisoned. Because he says, before faith came, we, we were held captive. He knew what this was to to be enslaved. He knew this lifestyle. This lifestyle of living as though God were not going to be pleased with you until you got your act together. And we know that's not simply a problem resolved for, reserved for unbelievers. We know unbelievers are apart from Christ. We know that therefore they are enslaved to their sin. But this is a problem in the church as well. That for those of us who, who know the gospel, who believe the gospel, that we can have this tendency to slip into this way of thinking. He's, he's writing here to the churches. He's writing to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have accepted the gospel, and yet he knows that this happens to believers as well, that we know in our brains this reality that, that we are not accepted by God because of what we do. We know that to be true. That's, that's gospel 101. And yet, it's, it's so counterintuitive to us, that this gospel idea that we're not accepted with God because of what we do, but we're accepted only because of the righteousness of Christ, that it's, it's hard for us to get our minds around. It, it's so foreign to the way the world works that sometimes we know it in our minds, we assent to it intellectually, but, but then we go on living as though it's not true. John Lynch is a, a pastor in Phoenix, and, and he describes his own life, and he divides his life into roughly four categories. He says, the first part of my life, I spent trying to make myself lovable so that I would be loved. The second part of my life, I spent trying to make myself worthy of the love I had found. The third part of my life, I spent trying to convince myself the love I had found was enough. He says, now in the fourth part of my life, I'm actually beginning to uh, experience the life that love has given me. And and we hear his categorizations. Perhaps you hear some of your own experience in that. Doesn't that fourth part sound beautiful? And in the fourth part of his life, he's now beginning to experience the life that love has given him. And yet, so often we find ourselves in those first two parts where where we're trying to make ourselves lovable so that we will be loved. We're trying to make ourselves worthy of the love we've received. That that we've found it, and yet we, we know 
that we're not worthy of it, and yet it's so hard to receive a gift of grace that we spend our time trying to make ourselves worthy of that love that we have found. We still do this, and yet Paul says to us, we need to consider who we are. We need to consider who we are, what he gives us here in verse 26 and 27. He says, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means you expressed one time your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were welcomed into the church. He says, if that's you, you have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have put on Christ. (coughs) Therefore, God is not waiting for you to get a little bit more holy before he blesses you. He says, this is not a standard for us to try to attain to, this righteousness of Christ. He says, we're not working towards it. He says, this is who you are. You have put on Christ. You are clothed even now in the righteousness that Christ provides. Consider what he's saying here. The righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, lived his entire life perfectly sinless. He began his ministry. And what did God say to him at the beginning of his ministry? At his baptism, the heavens were opened and the Spirit came down and and the Father said to him, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Those words that, that any son longs to hear from his Father, the righteousness of Christ, that God was perfectly pleased with him, all the way through to the end of his ministry, when Jesus fully obeyed the will of the Father, going to the cross, Reflecting on that, Philippians says that Jesus Christ became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him. God looked upon the offering of Christ on the cross. He looked upon the obedience of his son, Jesus. And he was so completely pleased with what Jesus had done, so completely satisfied with the righteousness of Christ and his full obedience that he gave himself over to death, even death on a cross, that then God exalted him. The prize for his obedience, the reward of his suffering was that God looked on him in his righteousness and he exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul tells us is that when God looks at us, he sees that same righteousness. That very righteousness of Christ, perfectly obedient to the Father, God looks at us and he says, you are clothed in Christ. So that when he looks at us, he does not see our unrighteousness. He does not see our remaining problems with sin, all of the temptations that we struggle with. He simply sees the righteousness of Christ. Believer in Christ, are you able to believe that? That when God the Father looks at you, he is completely pleased, he is fully satisfied to see the righteousness of Christ. This is what Paul is saying to us, that when God looks at us, <clears throat> he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's not an ideal that we strive for. It's not a goal that we achieve. It is actually a present reality for each one of us. And so he's saying to his churches here, why are you listening to teachers <clears throat> who would tell you that you must work for God's favor, that you must obey to a certain standard if you want to see the Father's smile? Why would you go back into the slavery of this performance-based religion? <clears throat> of working for God when the good news is that you already have the righteousness of Christ. 
And I, I think this applies to us in two ways as a church. It applies to each one of us individually. Individually, it, it's important for us if, if we are going to experience the benefits of the gospel. If our, if our kids here remember the, the catechism question that they have learned, what are the benefits that do accompany or flow from justification, sanctification, and adoption? Benefits that do accompany or flow from justification, sanctification, and adoption are peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, the love of God, security there, perseverance there until the end. I feel like I missed one. Increase of grace. Very good, Aubrey. Benefits. Peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, assurance of God's love, perseverance there until the end, increase of grace. These are the benefits. We must be comfortable, be settled with the righteousness of Christ if we are to enjoy those things. So there's an individual aspect to it, but there's also a communal aspect. There's also a corporate, church-wide, body of Christ aspect to this teaching. And that's why he follows this gospel truth in verse 27 with his manifesto of verse 28. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul lists for us here three categories that will divide us, that the world uses to define us and to rank us according to our worth. These were particularly true in the first century, but I think we see that they're still true today. In the first century, every Jew knew there were basically two types of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And Gentile was just a generic term for everybody else. Non-Jew, if you weren't one of them, if you weren't God's chosen, special, elect, holy people, well, you were one of them. You were the other. There were also two types of people in the world. There were free people and there were slaves. And there were men and there were women. And Elementary playground taunts aside, men always held the power. Men were always considered better. In the first century, it was particularly true. And we still struggle with these things today, do we not? These are the categories that divide us. In fact, we know, we have records from the first century that there were prayers that, that Jewish men would pray that said, Dear Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They took their pride, they took their identity, they took their self-definition from who they were according to earthly categories, that they had been born a Jewish free male and that that was the highest rank that one could possibly hope to achieve in this world. Those were the categories that divide ethnicity, economic status, and gender. And how nice it would be if we could say we've gotten over these things and those are just first century problems. But these are still the categories that divide us today, are they not? How quick are we, even within the church, to stratify and to categorize, to rush to judgment on others based on these things, based on our ethnicity, our family of origin, what type of family and what background we come from, based on our economic status or based on our gender? You see, the truth is that, that when you are existing in a, a legalistic environment, an environment where grace does not reign supreme, where the gospel is not proclaimed and believed and clung to in every aspect, if you're in a legalistic environment, you're always busy trying to rank yourself. You always have to know where you stand in comparison to everybody else because acceptance is based on worth and worth is based on performance. And so you always have to be ranking yourself. And so you have to find categories. 
and you particularly need to find categories that you excel in. And so men take pride in being men. Rich people take pride in being rich. Jews take pride in being Jewish so that they can boost themselves up and thereby put others down. That's how it works in a legalistic environment. You have to establish yourself. You have to work. But this is what Paul is saying. There are no categories in the church. There's no ranking systems. There's no stratification. There's no levels of righteousness or holiness. It says everyone in the church is wearing the same uniform. Everyone in the church is clothed in Christ and has put on Christ. Nobody is assigned to the red mesh vest that says you'll never make it into the game. Everyone is clothed in Christ. So your ethnicity has no bearing on how God sees you. Your family of origin, your background, where you came from. If you're a preacher coming from the seventh generation of families of preachers, which I'm not, but if you were, that would not be your righteousness. And if you come from the seventh generation of broken families, you have nothing to boast about in your family line, that's okay. God doesn't see you according to your history. He sees you according to the righteousness of Christ. Your economic status has no bearing on who you are in Christ. Those who have done well for themselves and found success in life, that's not your righteousness. Those who have struggled in life have not found success, have struggled to make ends meet. That doesn't color how God sees you. There is no slave or free. Economic status has nothing to do with us. (coughs) Even our gender, man or woman, male or female, does not determine our worth in the eyes of God. This is, without a doubt, the most difficult for the church throughout the centuries. But this is what we know, that in Christ, there is a supernatural unity, supernatural unity that transcends even our most basic of natural categories. In the first century, this was by far the most difficult for the church to hear, that there was no more male and female that they couldn't separate, as the synagogues had done, into men on this side and women on this side, that in terms of the worth that they had and their standing in the eyes of God, they were all completely equal. Men could no longer boast in being men. Women no longer had to fear or or worry about their status because they were a woman. You see, the law of Moses had categories. And and even with respect to gender, there were difficulties that women had. They, they suffered more regular uncleannesses so that they couldn't go and worship God in the temple. That's why Paul is setting the whole law aside and says, we come to God only by the righteousness of Christ, which is freely given to us through faith. Freely given to us. Therefore, no matter how, how good you were at keeping the law, that's not your righteousness. No matter how much you struggled with some of those things, that doesn't mark you down. Your righteousness is only in Christ. Therefore, one of my great dreams for us as a church, for New Life Burbank, is that we will be a community of, of supernatural categories, that we will begin to live out this vision of the church in Galatians 3.28, that we will be a community that so faithfully lives this out that when people come in, they won't even know what to make of us because the world will not have prepared them with the categories to understand what God is doing among us. That someday we will be a church that's so defined by grace in all of our relationships that that, that we will have the security and the righteousness of Christ and that that security in Christ will cast out all envy and jealousy, all strife and hatred. Why do we bite 
one another, as Paul says. Why is there envy and jealousy and strife among us? Is it not because we're still trying to rank ourselves, still trying to posture and pose for, for position in the church? And Galatians 3.28 says, there is none of this in Christ. We are all one. Someday we will be a, an alternative community to, the, community to the world, reflecting the new creation in Christ more than the pattern of the fallen world around us. It will be a place where our standing in Christ will make this a safe place for everyone, a safe place for humility, a safe place for repentance, a safe place for asking for forgiveness and granting it. This will be a place where no one has to hide who they are for fear of being marginalized. This will be a place where no one feels they have to put on their Sunday mask when they show up at the door to hide the reality of the rest of their week. That this will be a place that's so defined as a culture of grace that we will love one another as we are. That in Christ there will be no rich or poor, no black or white, no, no slave or free but that we will be one dressed all in the righteousness of Christ, a safe place for us to grow together and experience this life that's already ours in Christ, that we won't be in, in stage one or stage two trying to make ourselves worthy of the love that we've found in Christ, but that we'll live experiencing the love that is ours in Christ. This is Paul's first remedy for a struggling church, is to know <coughs> the free gift that is theirs the righteousness of Christ with which they are clothed. Now, the second remedy that he gives is the gift of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the people. As we move to chapter 4, again, we've read this and we've seen, he says in these verses, now he says almost the exact same thing. Again, going from slavery to freedom in Christ, to sonship, moving to being heirs of God through Jesus Christ. But what makes this passage unique in this paragraph is he changes the one factor. He says now, it's not the righteousness of Christ, but he says now in verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The difference here is this. Not only are we dressed in the righteousness of Christ, but we are empowered with the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first paragraph emphasized that by faith we're united to Christ. The second paragraph emphasizes that by faith in Christ we receive the Holy Spirit sent into our hearts. Let's pause. Let's just think. It's possible for us, many of us have grown up in church. Many of us have no doubt heard this truth over and over again. Yes, the Holy Spirit is a gift to us. The Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. But do we think? Do we make much of that? Do we rejoice in that? Do we worship over that fact? Can we just pause to think about the reality of that statement? The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, fully God from all eternity, without beginning and without end, present at the creation of the heavens and the earth, uh, hovering over the waters, empowering the prophets of the Old Testament through, which, through whom they did mighty deeds and performed miracles, present with Christ, empowering him at his baptism for his life and for his ministry. Poured out into the church. Now this one who is fully God is given to us and he says, we have been given the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This, this needs to be a truth that, that causes us to worship, to, to cause us to be humbled in joy and thanksgiving and gratitude and to be 
convicted also at the same time that, that every time we are operating in self-reliance, every time we are trusting in ourselves, that that is one way we, we grieve and we stifle the, whole, stifle the Holy Spirit and his ministry in us, forming us, shaping us, causing us to be more in the image of Christ. <clears throat> one commentator says it this way. He says, The Son's purpose was to, to secure for us the legal status of our sonship. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. Hear the distinction. The Son's purpose is to secure for us the legal status of our adoption, of our sonship. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure for us the actual experience of it. So that it's not only true that we are adopted by God as a theological reality, that yes, we, it's true and we assent to it, but now we have the Spirit given to us so that we actually begin to live out of that reality, so that we can experience it, so that we can begin to enjoy the benefits that come with being adopted as a son of God. So Christ brings the new objective reality, and the Holy Spirit allows us to enjoy the subjective experience. The work of the Son makes the relationship possible, the work of the Spirit makes the relationship reality. What kind of relationship would it be if you knew that you were friends and yet you never talked to someone? If you knew that you were friends and yet you never had moments together of joy? If you never shared experience together, what kind of friendship would that be? The Son has secured for us the status of friend. The Spirit now enables us to enjoy that, to experience it. The, the ministry of the Spirit that Paul talks about in verse 6 here, he says, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. First, it's by the Holy Spirit that we engage our relationship with God. He says, we cry out. The Spirit cries out. We cry out. The parallel passage in Romans, he says, he sent the Spirit to us, causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. Here he gives the Spirit, who is crying out, Abba, Father. <coughs> Together with the Spirit, we're crying out to God. Anyone who never cries out to God either doesn't have the Spirit or is stifling the Spirit because that's the ministry of the Spirit. To, to make us cry out to God, to engage with Him, to cry to Him in dependence, in joy, and in worship. And not only do we engage our relationship with God, but by the Holy Spirit we engage with God as our Father. We don't simply engage with Him as God, but we engage with Him as Father the Spirit cries, Abba, Father. He is called the Spirit of Adoption. It's this term, this, this almost childlike term, Abba, Father, that, that expresses that new relationship, that we cry out in trust. We cry out with full expectation that he is, <coughs> excuse me, that he is there for us. We, we cry out just naturally, as naturally as a child cries out for their father when he's near and when they need him. They don't pause. They don't ponder. Hmm, I wonder if now is a good time to cry out to my father. I'll wait till later when it's more convenient. A child just cries out. He says, we're given the spirit of adoption that we might cry out to him, Abba, Father, that we might begin to engage in the relationship of father and son that we have. Martin Luther <clears throat> reflects on this, on our ability to call God Father, to cry out to him in this way. He says, if we could believe this confidently, we would never be overcome by any affliction, however great. So if we could believe this confidently, that we have access to God as free as a son has to his father, if we could believe that, 
we would never be overcome by our afflictions, no matter how great. And I think he's tapping into something there that is very important for Paul. Why would legalism hold any temptation, hold any attraction for us to go into this, this lifestyle that Paul repeatedly says, that's a slavery, that's bondage, that's imprisonment. I think the reason that legalism holds attraction for us is because we're slow to believe God's fatherly care for us. We're slow to believe that God loves us this freely, this abundantly. We don't feel the affection of his presence, and so we doubt. We wonder if, if maybe we need to do something more. <clears throat> maybe we need to work a little harder to get his attention. Maybe he's looking at us and he's just not impressed yet. That's why we don't feel the affection of his presence. We just haven't, we haven't earned that smile from him yet, so we need to work a little harder. I think we feel that way sometimes, when he seems distant. And so we're tempted to, to look only at ourselves. We're tempted to judge and grade ourselves and say, how well have I done? Do I need to be doing more? <coughs> Maybe a season of suffering comes and causes us to doubt his fatherly care for us. Maybe those long, unanswered prayers that we pray cause us to doubt whether he loves us as a father loves his child. And so we begin not to look at his love for us in Christ, but we begin to look at ourselves instead. We begin to doubt. Maybe he would answer those prayers if I were just more faithful. Maybe he would do those things for me that I've been waiting on for so long if I was just a, a little bit better of a son to him. We look at ourselves and therefore we feel these afflictions and yet Paul tells us that this is the ministry of the Spirit to renew our hearts and to assure us in the confidence of God's love that cause us to cry out immediately. Abba, Father, give us assurance of God's fatherly love to cry out to him as a loving father, to, to cause us to trust him as a loving father, to give us such security in this relationship that we will never doubt his love for us, never doubt his care for us, never doubt that that he has done for us in Christ everything that he requires. Giving us his son and giving us his spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says, Now we have received the spirit who is from God in order that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We have received the spirit from God in order that we might understand what God has done for us. Part of the ministry of the spirit now is to apply the work of Christ to us to take the work of Christ that is objective reality and now apply it so that it becomes subjective experience. So that we not only know the, the gospel, the death of Christ, the resurrection, <clears throat> that we not only know those things as objective realities, truths that don't seem to touch us, but now they become real to us. Now we begin to live out of the grace purchased for us by Christ. Now we begin to experience in our relationships with God, our relationships with one another, there is a new reality to the way we live because the Spirit is ministering to us, causing us to understand the things freely given to us by God so that we might know that we are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It seems Paul in Galatians can't repeat to us too often who we are, what God has done for us in Christ. <coughs> These are his two precious remedies that he's given to us. One of my favorite authors is Jerry Bridges, and one of his most recent books is called The Bookends of the Christian Life. And he uses <clears throat> this kind of controlling analogy for the book. 
He says, your life is like a bookshelf. And every aspect of your life that, that we kind of compartmentalize, every different aspect of life is a book that is set on this bookshelf. Anytime you have a bookshelf with a lot of books and no bookends, books fall down, there's a domino effect, things fall on the floor, it's a big mess. And he says, that's often like our lives. But he says, the bookends of the Christian life are these, the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God has given these two things to us, these two precious remedies, these two truths to be bookends that we place on either end of our lives. That we trust only in the righteousness of Christ freely given for our standing. We look only to the power of the Holy Spirit for our power of life. He says when those two things are in place, the, the books of our life, every aspect of life, begins to stay in place. There begins to be an order that can be preserved. And without those bookends, if we don't cling to each one of those, then things fall all over the place. And that's what Paul gives us here in this passage. The righteousness of Christ freely given and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning for the gift of the Holy Spirit <coughs> given to us to explain to our own hearts, to make clear <coughs> the love of God demonstrated to us in the death of Christ on the cross. Father, we ask that he will continue his work, that he will persevere into the end, finishing the work that he has begun in us for our joy and for Christ's glory. Amen.